Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity, with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt. And as we begin here today, I'd like to call in the spirits. First, I'd like to call out to the ancestors, to those who bring all that is good and true and beautiful into our ancestral lines, to those who are speaking here today, those who are listening, those who might call in, anyone who has any contact at all with this program here today, it is your ancestors that we are calling in as well. We call out to those who have gone before us that we might learn, that we might learn from those who have gone before us and to go forward in a way that is new and different and perhaps brings healing not only to ourselves but to others and perhaps if we were truly wise to all living things. So we call out to these ancestors that that dream might become our reality. We ask them to gather around us here today and hold us well. And in the center of this circle of the ancestors, we reach down and call out to that essential ancestor, the earth. We call out to the earth to connect each one of us, that we know that we are one with all living things, not just humans, not just those people that we like, but those things that aren't exactly people. So we call out to all living things here on earth. And we ask that we in our hearts might connect with them and that we might learn from the earth how to do so. So we call out to the earth and we give thanks to her for the wonder of this dreaming of this place. Thanks for connection and interconnection. Thanks for groundedness and a place to belong. Thanks for a sense of family. May we extend that sense today beyond the bloodlines, along the heart lines to connect with all things. We reach up from this place, connected to all things here on earth, grounded into the center of that beautiful being, and we reach up to the sky, reaching all the way to the center of the sky, the highest power of the universe, and by whatever name you call that power, call it down. Call it into our circle here today that we might be blessed, that we might receive protection, guidance, generosity, and the benevolence of our universe. So we draw the sky down, let it meet within us with the earth. We let that connection of earth and sky brew within us. We call out, each one of us, to call out to your heart. May the energy of the heart be present with us here today. May it be the thing that mediates our power and our expression in the world. And we call out to the heart as that place that has that special magic, that ability to draw the powerful passions of the belly up, the clarity and the wisdom of the mind down, and to merge these two in a way that we cleverly and creatively discover why we are here, the true nature of our soul's purpose, and how we might live that in this day. So with the energies of the heart, the earth, the sky, and the ancestors around us called in, we give thanks for these proceedings. May they go forward in a way that is good for all living things. We give thanks to those who donate to the show from Last Mass Community and those listeners who have discovered the donate button on the whyshamanismnow.com website and have begun to donate generously. Thank you all. Every dollar goes directly to keeping the show on the internet airwaves, and I thank you all profoundly for making the show possible today. We give special thanks to Linda, Howard, and Elsa for their recent donations. And without further ado, we now give thanks to Stephen Bear, who is our guest today. Welcome, Stephen. Well, thank you. That was a beautiful invocation. I am, I am really happy to be here. 
Well, we are just absolutely delighted. We are still putting our little um, initiation series on hold for a few um, topics these last couple of weeks. But this one is really exciting. And I, it's just so much fun because I feel like talking about plant medicines means we get to poke sticks in hornet's nests today. And that's just so much fun. <laughs> it, that, that's certainly true. People people do tend to have very strong feelings one way or the other. So we're getting our little pokey sticks ready. All and right. while we're doing that, um, those of you who are listening, I want you to know that Stephen's beautiful book, Singing to the Plants, is available thanks to the University of New Mexico Press. And it seems to me the best way to get a hold of all of this is simply to go to www.singingtotheplants.com. And there you can find Stephen, you can find his blog, you can find a whole bunch of other great articles, and you can get the book, right? Or at least link to get the book. And uh, yes, and uh, uh, if you would like to wander around the blog and leave comments, that would be terrific. So so everybody, singingtotheplants.com. By the way, I have to say again, it is a beautiful title for the book and um, would be a great title for our show today, which is about working with plant medicine. So, um, everybody, feel free to download Stephen's show from April, where we talked about the book and about his um, vast life experiences. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's just a good story. But anyway, um, please feel free to download that podcast. We're not going to go back over that ground because we want to go forward and talk about the use of plant medicines in shamanism in the past present, uh, trials and tribulations of that. I don't know. We'll, we'll see where we go with that. All um, right. Yes. Yay. So before we go any further, we should probably, I don't know, we probably have to clarify legalities or something like that. Um, and uh, the first thing I, I thought we would do is applaud the recent um, Santa Daime decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. in, uh, in the state of Oregon, a federal court has held that the uh, Santo Daime, like uh, Unio do Vegetal before it, um, is, a, uh, uh, is permitted under the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the federal law, to use ayahuasca as a sacrament in its uh, church ceremonies. And so this is very similar to the Native American church and their... Um Winning the right to use their peyote, is that Yes. Um, there, were, there were really two precedents the court looked at. One was the use of peyote in the Native American church, and the other was the Supreme Court ruling on the UDV, another Brazilian new religious movement that uses ayahuasca as a sacrament, where a unanimous Supreme Court said that under REFRA, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the UDV was allowed to um, use ayahuasca. Now, as far as I know right now, the the ruling for Santo Daime uh, applies only within the, the federal district of Oregon. And I am not quite sure what its appellate status is right now, whether the uh, um, uh, the U.S. has appealed it to the circuit court or not. But as of right now, um, Santo Daime can use ayahuasca in its ceremonies in the state of Oregon. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm just sitting here musing about how much the spirits of the um, old-growth rainforest had to do with making that happen here in the state. <laughs> 
Um, now, I, now people should here, be aware. Okay. I, I think it's really important for people to understand um, that these rulings apply only to the UDV nationally because it was a U.S. Supreme Court decision, and locally in Oregon to Santo Daime. Um, ayahuasca has not been legalized, um, and the two Brazilian churches are still under an obligation uh, to keep track of their ayahuasca, uh, to import it under strict regulation, um, and to take steps to make sure that ayahuasca does not get to be used outside the ceremonies of the church. It's not as if people can now go drink ayahuasca anywhere they want and under any circumstances they want. So basically, probably the simplest way to say this and be responsible for today is everything we're talking about today remains illegal in the United States, unless you already know, because you're a member of a church that gets to use it, that you get to use it. Everything is a, is a big word. <laughs> for example, in the upper Amazon, um, uh, tobacco is used as a hallucinogen. Um, and uh, if, you, if you ingest a sufficient amount of tobacco, of nicotine, it acts as, as a hallucinogen and is, is used for that purpose um, in the upper Amazon, especially by shamans who are called tabaqueros. Um, but it's, it's also used uh, in, in ceremony. It's mixed into the ayahuasca and um, is legal in North America. Um, so I, it's hard for us to think of nicotine, of tobacco, as being a hallucinogen for two reasons, I think. One is that um, the tobacco that we get in North America has very, very low nicotine levels. Uh, compared to the tobacco used in South America, which is a different species that can have eight times as much nicotine as the tobacco used in cigarettes in North America. And the other reason is that people smoke tobacco as a mood stabilizer. They use nicotine um, to calm them down when they're anxious. Um, they use nicotine to... Uh, uh, get them going when they're feeling slow and depressed. Um, nicotine can help you with your mental focus. And many people in North America smoke it until they achieve that effect and stop long before they reach the dose that could cause hallucinations. Uh, but uh, there have been stories of people who are trying to stop smoking and have a nicotine patch and go ahead and smoke anyway and hallucinate. <laughs> so um, I would say basically with, with that exception, it is generally true that the sacred plants, the psychoactive plants, um, are uh, illegal uh, in North America. So let's go from there and just talk about... Um what makes these, you know, you just said the psychoactive plants. So the, the kinds of plants we're going to be talking about today that are generally used in, for sacred purposes. Mm -hmm. um, what, let's talk a 
little bit about the sort of the array of qualities that make them useful in sacred ceremony? I think... Um, and I'm partly I'm asking you this because, of course, the old language really isn't adequate. I, I think, think if we're going to actually talk about this realistically. I, I think that's right. I, I think if we're going to talk about um, the sacred plants the, that are used by shamans in their practice of shamanism, in their shamanizing, uh, I think we, we have to respect the fact that there is a whole array of these plants and fungi, um, and people have fallen into the habit of calling them all entheogens or hallucinogens or, or whatever, uh, when in fact I think that, that their effect and their uses are, are very, very different. Um, I think the problem is that we started off... Um, people started researching psychoactive substances using LSD. And the assumption was made that all the psychoactive plants, uh, one, have single active molecules, dimethyltryptamine, scopolamine, nicotine, that are the effective part of the plant, like LSD. And that the experience in a laboratory setting of each of these plants was essentially like LSD. And what they, they didn't do was think about the way in which the sacred plants are used in their indigenous ceremonial settings. They didn't think about the interaction of multiple molecules in the plant. They didn't take into account the fact that these are not just collocations of useful molecules, but in fact, they are spirits. And so we, we have reached the present day where the assumption is made that they are all sort of the same, and they're lumped together as entheogens, when I think that the effect of many of them in their conditions of use in, in indigenous ceremonies um, are, are individual and unique to each plant. As we, we talked about last time, I, my thought about them always is that they have different personalities, which is another way of saying they're spirits. Mm -hmm. They are unique um, beings, just like we're unique beings. I think that's exactly right. Let me give you an example. Um, there, there are, generally speaking, three major hallucinogens that are used in shamanic practice in the upper Amazon. And they are mapacho, or tobacco, they are ayahuasca, and they are zoe, uh, which is a variety of species in the genus Brookmansia. Um, these plants grow in North America. Uh, they're called angel's trumpets. I'm, I'm sure you've seen them. They have these, uh, they, they grow in the tropical part of uh, North America. They have these trumpet-shaped, beautifully colored flowers that hang down. At night, they have a very, very strong, sweet perfume. And uh, if, you, if you saw one, you'd recognize it right away. It's called Toe. Um, and... Toe is very, very rich in scopolamine, just as ayahuasca, the ayahuasca drink, is very, very rich in dimethyltryptamine. 
But the effects, even though they are both hallucinogens and create hallucinations, picture that word in quotation marks, they produce hallucinations, um, their effect is very different. Um, so A uh, produces uh, powerful, paranoid, frightening, and generally very unpleasant hallucinations. Whereas ayahuasca, although it can produce unpleasant hallucinations, does not have that aura of powerful, paranoid, terrifying kind of vision that ayahuasca can produce. So we have two hallucinogens, both sacred plants, uh, but ayahuasca is, is the goddess, is the mother, the teaching plant who shows you things that you have never seen and shows you something about the real nature of the world. And you have Toei, which will show you things, but things that will scare you and things that will terrify you and things that will make you call on your deepest reserves of courage. You know, this, this reminds me, when I'm, when I'm teaching classes about shamanism in general, not necessarily the plants, I start out talking about how human beings are designed to enter this huge range of altered states and that to simply say, oh, this is like meditation is utterly missing the point, frankly, of meditation and shamanic journeying. That I mean, if you think just about Buddhist meditation and all of the different practices to meet all of these to, to reach all of these subtly different, medi- you know, altered states that you reach through these meditations, they're all different, they're mm-hmm. all, you know, precise and, and subtly different. And um, I, it is one of those things that I find a little frustrating when we talk about altered states, that desire to just lump them all together instead of that desire to experience the diversity. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and it's partly why, you know, you're the guest we have on the show today to talk <laughs> about this is because you do get that they are spirits and that they are diverse and, you know, you're able to articulate that really well. And I think that that's something I would hope for people to come to understand at this time when, you know, the, the shadow side of the incredible diversity of the time we live in is this normalizing that's going on mm-hmm. that dump, dumps things down, particularly those things spiritual and challenging and potentially transformative. And, um, so I, as we go forward, um, I hope that people really listen for this aspect as we talk about these plants and how they have served and do serve our own transformational process that we're talking about, as you said, teachers, and they have different lessons. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, I think um, it, is, um, it is disrespectful, I think, uh, to, to go – to to commune with to to um, uh, to form a relationship with a a sacred plant and assume that you know what it's going to teach you. Mm-hmm. It will teach you what the plant thinks you need, and it will teach you in its own time and in its own way. So I I think that's uh, I think that's exactly right. I I think. Um, we, we have to understand, too, I think, that uh, all of these plants are embedded in, a, uh, in an entire pharmacopoeia 
of, of healing plants. And for example, um, because it's, it's interesting and it's trendy, there's been a lot of focus on ayahuasca. And there should be, because it is a, it is a, a fascinating and, and, and profound teaching plant spirit. Um, but it's part of um, a, a whole um, array of herbal remedies that are part of the practice of the, the mestizo shaman in the upper Amazon, who combines the, the, uh, the functions of shaman and herbalist in a way in which these functions are, are separated uh, among uh, other indigenous people in the upper Amazon and are separated in shamanic cultures around the world. Yeah, that merging in that particular area of the world, you can't really be a shaman and not be an herbalist in that mm-hmm. area. And that's yes. not necessarily true everywhere else. I think that's right. It's, it's, true not true. it's not true for even for, for many of the indigenous people in that area where the function of being an herbalist is separate from the, mm-hmm. the function of being a, a shaman. A shaman is somebody um, who, who drinks ayahuasca and who sucks out uh, pathogenic projectiles from the the body of somebody who is the the victim of sorcery, um, and often among indigenous people in the upper Amazon, the function of prescribing herbal remedies is separate from that function. As a matter of fact, the herbal remedies may have been tried and failed before people go to the shaman. What's interesting about the mestizo shamans is that they combine the functions of, of herbalist and shaman. And I think conceptually they see the psychoactive plants as being part of this huge natural pharmacopoeia um, that, that the jungle has provided to them. Well, and I think that, you know, being, well, North Americans, particularly Americans, that whole movement in our culture towards, you know, surprise me, interest me, entertain me, mm-hmm. you know, let me go have some more spiritual consumerism on a groovy eco tour kind of energy tends to focus in on, on a particular aspect of plants where these people, as you said, are seeing this, this literally whole jungle, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this, this whole system. And, and these plants are all equally valuable because if you don't need visions, but you actually need, you know, healing, physical mm-hmm. healing on your body, you sure don't want to be taken, you know, you, you want the plant that'll do the job. They're That's all exactly value. right. And, and when you, when you are being trained to be a shaman, uh, I think we talked about this last time, you undergo la dieta, the diet, which means that you go and live in solitude in the jungle um, and you give up at least salt and sugar and sex. And what else you give up varies considerably with uh, different indigenous cultures and, and different uh, teachers. But throughout the entire upper Amazon, undergoing a, uh, a, a period of restricted diet uh, is universal. And the idea is that you go into the jungle and you ingest the plant and you give up salt and sugar and sex and maybe spices and pork and, and fat, whatever. Um, 
and you commune with the plant. You take the plant into your body. You let the plant teach you from within. Um, you suffer on behalf of the plant. You, you show the plant that you are worthy of its love. And you learn about the plant from the plant itself. The plant teaches you its song. And this can occur in little flashes. The melody may come first. The words may come first. The song may appear in a dream. The song may, may appear as, as an irresistible impulse to sing. But what you are doing is forming an intimate relationship with the plant which means that built into the system is your ability to see each plant as an individual, to relate to that plant as being different from other plants. Because, because in case people aren't following you, because you would do this process plant by plant by plant. Absolutely learn right. Learn about each plant individually. That's right. And, and what makes a shaman in that area of the world, among the mestizos, is this, this immense plant knowledge that you know the song of the plant, you know how to summon the plant, that you have established a personal relationship of confianza with the plant. With the, you formed a relationship of mutuality. You formed a, a relationship of, of trust, of awe even of love with this plant. And, and that includes the, the psychoactive plants. But I think the, the question you've raised about the individuality of the plants, recognizing the individual personality of every plant is part of the, the system of la dieta, of dieting with the plant. Um, the, the, the plants teach you from within as you undergo suffering and deprivation in order to win the love of that plant spirit. There's a, there's a element in this that I, that I hear just because this is part of what I see in my own practice is that, you know, the, the spirits, be they plants, be they your ancestors, be they whatever are, are waiting to see where you are and if you're ready and if you're clear and, you know, the, I always have these students that go, well, if my helping spirit's, you know, worth its weight in gold, it should know my question. It's like, well, actually, they're waiting to see if you know your question. You know? I, 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 that's very well put, yes. And so that's what these plants are really waiting. What's also interesting about this, we've sort of merged in here to talking about traditional work with the ayahuasca for the shaman. Now, mm-hmm. the other thing about this is that um, – what I was going to say. Oh, I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> It'll come back. Um, wait, until, wait until you're my age. <laughs> oh, I remember. Is that, okay. you know, the thing is, okay, so you're a new budding shaman. You're, you don't go and just have your teacher hand down their knowledge with the plants. You diet as well. Each, each new shaman is reestablishing their own original relationship directly with the spirit of the plant, mm-hmm. or they're not a shaman. I think that's exactly right. And this relationship with the plant is, in a way, a model for your relationship with 
both human persons and other than human persons uh, in addition to the plants. Um, the ideal is to have a relationship of confianza, of mutuality, of trust, of mutual dependence, of generosity. And that's the relationship you want to establish with each plant that is part of your shamanic practice. And, and I, whenever I talk about this, I always notice contemporary people rolling their eyes at that part. <laughs> well, you but, know, I, I, I should add to this, too, that, that people who, who, who teach and practice shamanism in, in North America, North Americans who teach and practice shamanism, um, are, I think, often guilty of, what can we call it, uh, animalism. When people come to you to get teaching from you, they will ask you to help them get their power what? Animal. Animal. How many of them come to you and say, I want to find my plant? Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, while animals play a very important role in Upper Amazonian shamanism, in Mestizo shamanism in the Upper Amazon, and you have all of these animal protectors your protectors are also plants, especially the spiny palms from which darts are made. Um, but your primary relationship, your primary healing source are the plants, not the animals. Okay. Um, so there, so, there is a kind of animalism, speciesism yeah. involved. <laughs> well, because, and also that... that sort of assumption. It's like, yeah, well, the, all that interconnectedness and everything, but we're not there anymore, so I'm going to ignore that part. And this is where everyone's shamanic practices stop growing, and, and they can journey all they want, but until we understand that it is that those interconnected relationships that we must develop, and those, those love-based relationships, and mm -hmm. obviously we're not talking about romantic human love, but we're talking about that quality of relationship that you describe because that is the only way to actually live consciously with our understanding that everything is connected and we're all one and that's not like mm -hmm. a kumbaya thing that's a terrifying thought you know that we're all connected and we're all one well the only way i can really do that then is to develop that quality of relationship as you said the plants are teaching us the quality of relationship we need to have with everything it's a very complex relationship in the upper Very Amazon. Hard, yeah. because and it is love it's the, just not simplistic and yes and it, it's it's um there is a dark side we talked a lot about the dark side during our last con conversation there is a dark side a shaman can suddenly find that the spirits with whom he has formed this relationship have disappeared have mm -hmm. abandoned him and he is left as one person put like a drunkard pathetic without the spirits anymore. Um, this relationship must be maintained. It must be nurtured. I was told over and over again that the plants are muy celosa. They're very jealous. <laughs> and, and my plant teacher, Doña Maria, and, and my maestro Ayahuasquero, Don Roberto, kept telling me that um, the, this jealousy is a very sexual jealousy. The plants do not like the smell of semen, of menstrual blood, or of human sexual intercourse. Hmm. One of the reasons why you give up sex during La Dieta is because the plant spirits demand your fidelity. 
Um, this is a very complex, profound relationship between human and, and plant that operates on, on many levels simultaneously. And like I said, it has, it has a dark side. Um, if you it's break la dieta, you can be punished by the, the spirit of the plant you were dying, uh, dieting with. So, and I think this is, this is generally, this is, I mean, there's, um, as, we, as you and I talked last time, shamanism is, is filled with these complex and profound relationships with spirits, uh, the relationship between healing and harming, shamanism and sorcery, and I think that the relationship uh, with the plant spirits partakes of of that of both the light and the dark sides of shamanism. Well, it's it is very complex, and I I and actually it's another part of the reason for this show because I think that there are some very simplistic ideas being shopped around out there about shamanism that set people up to be utterly and completely unprepared for some of these deeper experiences. Um, you know, so. Steve, tell yeah. us. Okay, so we have we have an idea here with ayahuasca of the the shamans learning to work with it. So mm-hmm. now, give us a sense of local people then going to work with those shamans with ayahuasca, and because what I'd like to do is sort of set the context for then what happens when a busload of gringos comes in. To work with <laughs> ayahuasca. You know, I mean, how? So let's talk about what it looks like, kind of in its. Well, in the form the plant spirits taught the people to use. Well, um, let's say, oh, pre-1990. Yes. Um, I don't like to use the word traditional to talk about shamanism in the upper Amazon and, and mestizo shamanism in particular because there has never been a traditional mestizo shamanism. It's been voraciously eclectic from the very beginning, mm-hmm. from its origins. It combined folk Catholicism and indigenous shamanism. And uh, a generation ago, they, they, they incorporated ideas of, of radio waves and flashlights, and now they incorporate ideas of laser beams and intergalactic travel. Um, <laughs> it's always been voraciously eclectic, but I, we can talk about, say, pre-1990 mestizo shamanism in the upper Amazon, which, which is still being practiced most places in the Amazon, except in a few cities like Iquitos and Pucallpa, and now Puerto Maldonado, where there are a relatively small number of mestizo and indigenous shamans uh, who have contact with gringos coming in to drink ayahuasca. So pre-1990, I think, one way to think about ayahuasca is that it was an information-giving plant. Ayahuasca gives you visions that tell you things you need to know. In a shamanic context, for example, it allows the shaman to know where lost objects are because he can see them. If somebody comes to a shaman and wants to know about the the well-being of a distant relative, ayahuasca can tell the shaman that this distant relative is healthy or ill. If somebody has drowned or somebody has disappeared on the water, the shaman can see what's going on under the water and see whether that person, for example, has been abducted into the city 
of the water people or, or the mermaids. Um, the shaman can see, because ayahuasca shows him, where darts have penetrated the flesh of a sick person and can show him the face of the sorcerer who has uh, projected those darts. It tells both the shaman and the patient who is drinking ayahuasca who is sleeping with an unfaithful spouse or who has cast the spell that has caused the patient's business to fail. Ayahuasca gives you information. It does not itself cure anything, but it tells the shaman what the problem is and will tell the shaman where to suck out the pathogenic projectile, the dart, um, the, the monkey tooth, the razor blade that has been projected so into the patient's flesh. So it's diagnosis and clarifying the remedy, though ayahuasca itself is not, may not be the remedy. Or is it? Precisely. Okay. Um, and, that, and that's its role in, in, uh, in the healing ceremony. Uh, it's, it, is, um, it is part of the entire healing process. So, so it could be, so kid wakes up sniffly and whatever, and mom probably has the plants needed growing um, outside. Yes. And, you know, and does the, over the, what would be our over-the-counter remedy is over the kitchen counter remedy. Right. <laughs> you know, gives the kids the plants, and they should have worked, and they don't. And so then, at, you know, there's a certain level at which the adult says, hmm, we probably need to take this to the shaman to find out what's really going on. Right. So and that's like an everyday, ordinary way a mom might say, hmm, got to go talk to the shaman. That- that's right. And, okay. uh, and, and it's interesting. Um, although the shamans say that they have learned the plant medicine from the plants themselves, um, they are tapping into a broad current of folk knowledge about the medicinal use of plants. And they use plants in very much the same way that mom would use plants. Um, And it's that their knowledge is broader and more profound, uh, but it is still part of the, um, the folk herbal culture in which these shamans live and work. Okay. So now, bustle to gringos pulls up. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and the gringos come in with a whole set of concepts about the nature of human suffering, the nature of illness, um, and what you do in order to alleviate human suffering. And they come in and they, they think in terms of popular New Age concepts. They think in terms of popular uh, Freudian psychology. And they come in and they hear about ayahuasca. And they analogize ayahuasca to the kinds of insight-producing um, entheogens that they're used to, have, used to using or have heard about. Things like LSD things like uh, psilocybin mushrooms. So they come in and, and they take this concept of uh, ayahuasca being an information-giving plant, a teaching plant, and 
and and dress it in the clothes of modern New Age thinking and popular psychology that we suffer from inner wounds from our childhood, and that somehow ayahuasca will heal these wounds. And if you try to tease out and articulate uh, the conceptual basis for this, it is a kind of popular Freudianism. Ayahuasca will show you where the wound came from, you will react to it, you will have an ab reaction, you will get very emotional, and, and somehow this, this will heal you. Now, this is not dissimilar from the way ayahuasca is in fact used to heal in the upper Amazon, because the upper Amazonian concept of what constitutes a disease is very much broader than our own idea of what constitutes a disease. Um, malaise, exidia, depression, an unfaithful spouse, um, an inability to have children, a failing business, all of these are lumped together um, within the general concept of disease in the upper Amazon. So the gringos are not entirely wrong, but I think they're dressing it in clothes that conceal the real shape of what's going on. And I think that they are impatient. And they think of it in terms of a transformative experience, an epiphany, an insight. And yet I am not at all sure that ayahuasca or the other healing plants actually work that way. Well, this is a little bit out of context. I took it off one of your blogs, but I think it fits here where you're saying that, you know, perhaps uh, these spirits are not is not a psychotherapist, but a teacher leading to where it intends, not to some sort of enlightenment, not to self-improvement, not to community volunteer work, but into the dark and luminous realms of the spirits. Mm-hmm. Damn, so it seems if the person can find <laughs> healing <clears throat> from the dark and luminous realms of the spirit, because there may be a level of insight beyond what the person's even programmed to think they even want, you know, there may be a feeling of a spontaneous healing, but and, uh, yes, and I was I, just going to say, but it's because, well, it's just not usually what people ask for. I, I think that um, if I had to give one piece of advice to somebody who was going down to Peru to drink ayahuasca, I would say, give up your preconceptions. Because preconceptions are a way of attempting to control what's going to happen. And what that means is that you are closing yourself off to the plant spirit. And, and what the plant spirits demand is an open-heartedness in their relationship to human beings, just as I think the plant spirits ultimately demand open-heartedness in our relationship to each other mm-hmm. and our relationship to all the plants and all the animals. Um, so- to go down there and say, oh, I am going to have an epiphany, I am going to have an insight, is an attempt to tell the plants how they should operate. Well, and particularly when we're saying, I've rejected allopathic medicine, I refuse to talk to a therapist, I reject all of this, here I'm going to heap everything onto you, oh, plant spirit, fix me. Yes, exactly right. (laughs) And 
Um, I am not sure that is the way to establish this kind of relationship of confiance that you should you should have with the plant. Um, I um, I don't know if I told you the story um, last time, but if it's okay with you, I'll I'll say it even if it's again. I, oh sure. Um, there was a time when I used to help somebody put people up on the hill uh, for a vision fast, and I did a number of. Uh, Vision fast in the deserts of the Southwest, in in the Gila Wilderness, in in Death Valley, in the Pecos Wilderness, and I I worked with my teacher uh, to um, to help put people up on the hill and hold the the base camp for them while they were away. Many of them came in wanting exactly this kind of experience we're talking about with ayahuasca. They they wanted a transformation. They they wanted a, an epiphany. They wanted an insight because they were mostly um, uh, middle class, white, college educated people, and of course, personal transformation in 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 that culture comes from a, a some kind of cognitive insight. And this is what they wanted. They wanted an aha experience. And some of them got it. Many of them did not. They wanted what I came to call the pink neon buffalo to come <laughs> thundering over the horizon. And there was this one guy who went out. We were in Death Valley and right by the Eureka Mountains, and, and these washes come down. He walked back into one of these washes and found a cave. And um, he was pretty miserable during those four days and four nights. Um, it was hot during the day, and it was a bad year for mosquitoes, and it was cold at night. And he, he really suffered, and he didn't have a vision. And he came back down, and he was distraught. He was crying because he had not seen the pink neon buffalo. And so I talked with him, and we talked for a while about what he had actually seen. and. Uh, bats at one time had lived in this cave because there was guano in a certain area of the cave. He had seen ravens circling in the sky. Um, he had seen a lizard doing those lizard push-ups under a creosote bush. And as we talked, it became clear to both of us that the spirits had been talking to him the whole time. Mm -hmm. And he hadn't been listening. Because he wanted the pink neon buffalo to come thundering over the horizon, and he was looking for that, and he didn't see the ravens, and he didn't see the lizard. And I think the same is often true with ayahuasca. I think people can drink ayahuasca and be deeply disappointed because they think that it's going to be like an LSD experience, or it's going to it's going to provide some kind of cognitive insight into the nature of reality or the nature of who they are. They think that somehow the plant spirit is going to grab them and turn them into a different person. And and when that doesn't happen, they feel like it's their fault, that they're inadequate. When in fact the plant may be changing them in subtle ways that they may not even be aware of for six months or a year. Because I think the plants teach us, the plants heal us in plant time, not mm -hmm. in human time. So with ayahuasca then, if we were saying, you know, the, the biggest hazard for a contemporary person entering into working with this plant for ayahuasca might simply be their expectations. I think that's right. 
Well, I'd like to be able to spend a little bit of time also talking about cactuses and mushrooms. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, um, so with this idea of um, personality, the personality of the plant and how they're used traditionally and what the, you know, what might be a good way to approach them as a contemporary person. Do you have a favorite cactus you want to talk about? Well, um, I think that the, uh, the peyote cactus and its, its cousin, the San Pedro cactus, both are rich in mescaline. And I think they have similar personalities. They're cousins. Um, if we think about, um, say, um, the ayahuasca drink and the peyote cactus and, uh, the, say, the teonanakit, the psilocybe mushroom, um, I think they have very different kinds of personalities. I think um, the uh, teonanakit is, is, is more cognitive. Uh, it's closer to the, the kinds of uh, insight or depth-producing um, experience that, that people in North America take as normative for psychoactive plants. I think that, that San Pedro or Wachuma are, are uh, heart-opening plants. I, uh, I think they are, um, they, they are closer to what the word empathogen was coined to describe. Um, and I think ayahuasca is, is a hallucinogen. It creates visions, real, present, three-dimensional, interactive persons and things that are embedded in an explorable space. And I think this picture gets complicated by the fact that there is overlap in their effects. Um, The beginning visual changes in ayahuasca can be similar to the beginning visual changes in peyote. And, of course, people's reports of what they experience the conceptual tools that they use to understand their own experience um, can have a profound effect on on how they 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 report what they've experienced. But I think that that say taking just these three um, two plants and one fungus, um, I think that they 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 have very different kinds of personalities. Um, and whether these are connected in any way to their chemical structure, to the fact that, that ayahuasca has dimethyltryptamine and, and that uh, uh, peyote has uh, mescaline and uh, um, uh, teonanakit has psilocybin, uh, may, there may or may not turn out to be a connection between the, the chemical structure and, and their effect. Well, there's a listener who was actually asking me to talk more about something I said in the last time we were talking just about how plants, plants being the top of the consciousness food chain. But I think <laughs> that, that part of we're really speaking to it in a way and generally in this show is that not only are each of these plants that are used as the sort of the sacred plant medicines have different personalities and offer different experiences, but all of the plants hold these different medicines. What's, 
I mean, there's one thing that most people don't know is that the that these whatever we want to call it, empathic, entheogen, hallucinogenic, you know, these these particular qualities we're talking about are in very few families within the plant and fungi world. They're not dispersed throughout all the different plant species. They're 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 in families. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I find that interesting. And, and other qualities that we need are sort of the wisdoms held in the other plant families. And frankly, for a human being to survive on the planet, we need all the wisdoms of all the plant families. And that's frankly the only way we've made it. This I, I think that's right. <laughs> um, I didn't and, mean to get up on that soapbox. No, but, I, um, I agree with you completely. You know, I think, I think the plants love us. And I don't know why, because we certainly <laughs> haven't done anything lately to deserve it. Uh, but I think they love us. And they, they want us to be like we were. They want us to be real human beings again. They want us to live in right relationship with each other. They want us to live in right relationship with them. Um, they, they want it to be like uh, the mythic time when plants and animals and humans all spoke the same language. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think we're ever going to be able to go back to that. Uh, and I think probably the plants know that, but they, 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 they like our music. Um, they, uh, uh, they have this kind of strange fondness for us, which is difficult for me to explain. But I think well, they I, want I us. They want us to be funny. human beings. What was that? They want us to be human beings. And we I have think forgotten they like how. us because we're funny. I we... think that I think that's exactly right. I think they find us funny. And every um, once in a while, we innovate magnificently. <laughs> I you think know? I think that's part of. I think I really think they like music, and we are one of their best sources of music. Um, and uh, Gary Snyder, the poet, once once described human beings as, in in the context of the natural world. He differentiated human beings as being sexy primate clowns. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly right. I think I think that's in a way how we fit into the natural world. And I think they do find us funny. I think they like our music. I think they they want to be friends with us. Um, and they they want us. They they want this relationship of confianza, and, and that's why they they have taught the the shamans of the upper Amazon um, how to relate to plants through the the restricted diet, how to focus your mind on on your relationship with the plant, how to sit in silence and solitude for days and days in the jungle, just watching the jungle being absorbed into the jungle, um, absorbing what they call the smell of the jungle, becoming one with the jungle as we once were back in mythic times. But they do wish for us to be better humans. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that, you know, shamans in the upper Amazon are, are, generally among the best hunters and fishers, they are called men of the jungle. 
uh, with great respect. And I think part of that is because they spend so much time in solitude in the jungle, just sitting quietly and watching. And there is folklore about people who drink ayahuasca slowly being absorbed into the jungle until they mm. become like a plant themselves. And I, I think that's, again, what this myth of, of primal unity is telling us, that, that somehow we need to become part of the jungle again. We need to have this relationship of trust and generosity and mutuality uh, with uh, with the plants, and and I I believe that message is you know you can substitute whatever in the jungle for whatever your terrain is that that the plants everywhere are asking us to come back into relationship with them mm-hmm. be it alpine or you know high desert or or prairie or or what have you that. Um, and, and and just as it transformed you as you were being Mr. Survival Guy, <laughs> you know, you, you stop for a minute, you look around and go, huh, life's really easy for these people. What's going on? And then you realize, well, they're sitting quietly enough for a while to talk to plants and learn. Susan Weed, who is one of the, the great contemporary herbalists, a woman for whom I have great admiration, told me once that uh, when, when her um, apprentices come to work with her, what she does is make them go herd her goats for weeks at a time. <laughs> because her hard. Uh, because it's kind of like La Dieta. Herding the goats makes them go out in solitude into the woods where, where they have nothing to do because the goats pretty much take care of themselves except to watch and to learn and, and, and to start to build a relationship with the spirits of the local indigenous plants around her farm. And to me, that's a form of la dieta, only with goats. <laughs> la dieta with goats. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Well, I can't believe this, but our hour is actually already up once again. Well, and- I had a terrific time. We'll have to do this some more. We'll just have to do it some more. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your wisdom and your experience with the plants. It's, um, it's beautiful. Thank you. It was, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much. So I want to also give thanks to all of your teachers, be they humans or plants or whatever, actually, and all of their ancestors um, for, for um, helping you to become such a great human. Um, so thank you. Working on it, but the spirits are constantly disappointed. (laughs) So we give thanks to the earth below and the sky above, to the ancestors who stand around us and the heart that unites us all. I thank you all for listening here today. If you would like to um, make comments, I'm sure that you can find a blog somewhere on Steve's extensive and beautiful website, singingtotheplants.com, to make them. You're welcome to send them to me as well. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you again, Steve. And um, next week, we will return, finally, to our initiation series with an interview with Reverend Shaman Jean-Luc Edwards from BC, Canada. I hope you all will join us next week and have a great week. Go find a beautiful tree and start to create um, a relationship of the heart with it and see what happens.